Today we're in Luke chapter 10, and uh, Luke chapter 10 will, will likely be um, a familiar story. If you've grown up going to church, you are very familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've not grown up in churches, you still may have heard of the Good Samaritan, because this is a pretty familiar parable. A parable is simply a, a story that Jesus tells to illustrate a spiritual truth. There's depth and meaning and understanding. There's layers to parables that allows us in life to continually grow in our understanding, our depth of understanding, and the application of parables. I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus so often taught in parables. That there's not singular meaning and definition that applies to one specific phase of life, but instead that in parables we find depth in meaning, and, and in different seasons of life, different pieces that, that stand out to us. Recently, as, um, as a branch, we, we got to do an exercise called dwelling in the word and it's an experience in which we uh, as in community in a group of a dozen people get to listen for God's word in scripture and it's fascinating to me how many different things come out as we have conversation about God's word as it as it as it as it meets us in different places in life and different experiences uh, during the week I got to dwell with Julian uh, this last week and man did he have just some cool and profound things to say it's just amazing the way God can speak through each of us and and, um, and, and do just incredible things as we listen to his word. So today we go to a familiar passage, but we go there unapologetically um, because to be reminded of these things and to be invited into the story of Jesus again holds beautiful potential. My prayer for us this morning is this, that we can hear a familiar story, but find new depth and understanding and meaning in it today. So let's pray over that as we engage God's word. Father, we uh, thank you for this time to come together to, um, uh, to, to read your word um, and to explore uh, its depth and meaning and its application in our lives. So Father, I pray that you will speak this morning, Father, that we can, um, each and every one of us, hear uh, from you this morning in Luke 10. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever, have you ever known something, um, but it hadn't yet taken hold of your life? Um, I was trying to think of examples of when knowing something does not equate to being something. And so I could know the basics of how to build a home, but until I've built a home, I'm not a home builder, right? We can have knowledge, but until it creates a lifestyle, till it, until we engage it and live it, uh, we have yet to become what that knowledge is intended to produce in our lives. And so that is the story of the Good Samaritan. It begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, I love uh, the way Jesus interacts, especially when he's trying to be trapped uh, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, especially when people are out to trap him in his words or disprove his understanding or teachings on God. And this is one of those occasions, an expert in the law. So this is a Jewish man who taught law, who studied law for a living. Uh, this, is, this is what he did. He was the expert among the people. And he comes to Jesus, and it says specifically that his, his goal is to test Jesus. 
Now, we're familiar with testing questions. If you have kids or have had kids, uh, you know how your, your kid will come to mom and ask a question and get one answer, and then they'll go to dad because they are testing, really, the results of that first answer, right? They, they want the other answer. We're, we're testing, we're trying to, to manipulate this to go our way. So this man has come, not with a genuine question of, teacher, uh, help me understand this, but it says, no, he came with the purpose of testing Jesus. Um, and so the man comes with a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? The question here is interesting to me because um, it- it's not a question of, uh, will you forgive me? Will you heal me? Will you give me life? It's not, a, it's not a genuine question of, what does it look like to thrive as a follower of God? No, he asks, what is the bare minimum that I have to do to receive the reward? And that's fascinating to me because so often in life we live that way. I mean, occasionally in, in work we find a position and a job that we love and we pour ourselves into it. But so often we go to work and we do what has to be done so that we can be done and we can go home, that we can receive the reward, that we can get the paycheck, right? In so many aspects of life, so often in our relationships, uh, we give the minimum because we're exhausted, because we have other things on our mind. And the man comes, this man comes to ask Jesus that exact question as it pertains to spirituality, as it, it pertains to eternal life. He asks, so what is the minimum that I have to do to receive eternal life? And I love the way Jesus responds in these moments. Uh, instead of answering the question, of course, this is an expert in the law, and, and, and as many experts in the law as there were, you could hear different answers to any theological or law-based question. I mean, there's a reality that there is interpretation involved in God's word, in, in the law, in, in our understanding as we um, approach God's text today. And so, um, so, so Jesus, rather than giving him his answer, he, he turns the question back on this man and he says, um, well, well, what's written in the law? You should know you're the expert, right? He turns it back on the man and says, you know what's written in the law. You tell me what you must do to receive eternal life. He asks, how do you read it? You know, what's your interpretation of the key fundamentals to faith and following God? And so in verse 27, the man answers, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as a Jewish man, uh, he recited this daily, a couple times a day. This was familiar. He doesn't give any out-of-the-box answer. He doesn't give anything shocking. No, the Israelite people, they would recite this verse, this passage, that, that, it would be, uh, that it would be core to them that they would know this in and out. You see, this is a man who knew the right answer, but Jesus is going to challenge him with the reality that it is yet to transform his life. He has yet to become the loving person that he is called to be. So Jesus redirects and he, he in, in invites the man, well, you tell me what's the greatest. And the man recites the same passage that he said thousands of times over the course of his life. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. Jesus is ready to sum the conversation up right there, saying, you know what you need to do to receive eternal life. That that if you would learn to love your God with everything that you have, that that if unending love were devoted to God and an undying compassion and love were offered to the people around you, well, well, then you would receive eternal life. 
Now, here's the fascinating thing about this passage to me. As simple as Jesus boils it down, I love when Jesus makes things really simple for me. Uh, that's really good for me. Uh, just who I, I like simplicity, and, and he's so simple. Love God and love people, and you got it. You, get, you got it covered. But as simple as he boils this down, when, when we really take seriously the words of the text and, and, the, and the challenge in our lives, the reality is, is that none of us can accomplish it. To love God with everything I have. I mean, we probably, each of us has, has heard these words hundreds, thousands of times in our lives. And yet, I know for me, I have yet to realize what it is to love God with every bit of me. Selfishness still creeps in, my own desires and my own hopes and dreams and my busyness and so many things in life pull me away from fully loving God with every bit of me, with my heart, my soul, my strength, and my mind. So as simple as the task is, I realize the challenge is it. And, and to love other people, I mean, I, I confess to you this morning that, that, that this, is, this is hard, that I don't do it perfectly. Just in the last week, I drove past a couple uh, with backpacks on the side of the road asking for help. And this is, uh, this is a challenging uh, reflection, uh, having been studying this passage all week. Uh, and I saw them on the other side of the road, and I, I knew they needed help. And, uh, um, and, I, and I, felt, I felt like I should probably stop. And I didn't in that moment. And, uh, and it's, it's weighed on me all week long. Um, the fact that, that I knew there was an opportunity, and I sensed just in my spirit that God was impressing upon me an opportunity to engage someone, uh, and I missed it. And I can't tell you how much in this moment, as I have to confess this to you, how much I would love to rehab that moment. I'm driving the other way on a road with a barrier. I w- it would have taken a long time to get turned around. I would have had a park, and I would have had to jaywalk across streets to get to where they were there on the corner of Columbia Center and, and the highway. Um, wow. Uh, excuse me. Sorry. That got really loud. Um, so uh, <laughs> that caught me off guard. So um, it, it would have been a major inconvenience, but I cannot tell you how desperately in this moment I wish I could have that over again that I could walk up to those people and just have a conversation about life, that I could walk them two blocks over and share a meal with them. I can't tell you how desperately I want that moment over again, and yet here's the reality. I'm just like the man that approaches Jesus in this story. As, uh, as he comes to Jesus saying, what's the minimum? Jesus says, well, just do what you already know. I know I need to love God, and I know I need to love people, and yet... And, and yet I realize, just like this man, it is yet to completely take hold of my life. So the man in verse 29, he turns to Jesus and, um, and he, he says, uh, he says, it says that he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, the question here is an interesting one to me. Notice that he skipped over the whole first part about loving God with everything. I don't know. Was it too big a task? Did he feel like he was already accomplishing it? I'm not sure exactly why, but he skips the whole first part of the commandment. But in justifying himself, he, he feels like, maybe I can lower the goal a little bit. For years, I was a youth pastor, and um, it's important as a youth pastor to, uh, to play basketball. 
Uh, at least it was with the group that I was a part of. And so we had a hoop there at the church and we'd come a half hour early and we'd play basketball before class on Wednesday nights or, or whenever it was. And, uh, and we loved playing basketball. And every once in a while though, it would break down. Um, we'd, we'd quit playing a game of basketball against each other and the guys wanted to show off. They were ready to dunk, right? I want to be like Michael Jordan. And one guy uh, would try to dunk and would never be able to accomplish it. And so here's what we did. You grab this little handle on the back of the, the basketball hoop and you lower the goal, right? You bring the goal down to six or seven foot and man, these guys would just dunk like no one's business, right? Because they could lower the goal. It was that much easier. And how fun is it to accomplish things when we can just lower the goal, But Jesus, he set a high standard here. And this guy, he says, you know what? I think I can lower the goal here. By by the way I define my neighbor, I can get out of of really having to engage this, of really having to live this in deep and challenging ways in my life. So he says, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so in reply, Jesus tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense you may have. Jesus asked, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus, uh, a man comes trying to trap Jesus in his words, in his theology, in his understanding. And and Jesus turns the table on the entire conversation, saying, though you're an expert in the law, though you know a lot, your knowledge has not made you the follower of God that you are called to be. The man further challenges Jesus, saying, but, but who is my neighbor? How can I get out of the unattainable teaching that Jesus has called us to? And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that, that many of us have heard many times in our lives. It tells of a man who's beaten up on the road. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a commonly traveled road and also a very dangerous one. Jerusalem is a hub of uh, the Israelite people, and Jericho was, uh, came to be a winter retreat for the wealthy of Jerusalem. And so the road was regularly traveled and regularly by wealthy people. So uh, this 15-mile stretch of road here uh, was frequently um, also occupied by, by burglars, by bandits who would rob people. And so Jesus told a story that was familiar to them. They knew that it was a dangerous road. They knew that you had to take precautions on this road. And he tells a story of a man, uh, an Israelite man, who is uh, beat up and left for dead on the side of the road, having been robbed. And the first man to come by is a priest. 
It's interesting how often we would think, well, since he knows more, since, since he's committed his life to following God in a special way, he would be the one to accomplish it. And wouldn't it be easy if we could say, yeah, see, there's someone else to do the work of helping this person. But in this case, the priest, being a, a human being, passes on by. In fact, goes to the other side of the road. You see his superiority in the way he lives his life as he passes on the far side. Uh, it's possible that he's afraid of the burglars still being there, waiting to rob him as well. But for whatever reason, the priest is on his way. And a Levite came by. This is a lawyer. This is, a, a, again, a prestigious person in the uh, Israelite community. And when he came by, he saw the man, and, and again, he passed by on the far side of the road. He wouldn't even get near to the man. He wouldn't check on him to see if he's alive, mend his wounds, or risk his life by helping him. And finally, a Samaritan comes by. And you might be familiar, but I'll, I'll catch us up to be sure. The Samaritan people uh, were Israelites um, who, who were born uh, uh, in marriages outside of Israel. The Israelites were to marry their own people. They were to be um, an exclusive nation, uh, a light to the other nations. And uh, it, it, so many times in Israel's past, they abandoned God and they went their own way. So the Samaritan people are the people born of these marriages, breaking covenant with God. And, and so on one level, for good reason, they were despised by the Israelite people. These were the half-breeds. Racial tensions ran high. And so they were hated by the Israelite people. And I want, to, I want you to notice the way Jesus tells the story here. He doesn't say that it's a hurting Samaritan person on the road and one of the good Israelite people comes and helps him even though they're enemies. Have you ever noticed that Jesus reversed this story? And he says, no, this is an Israelite person on the road. And, and the least of these, the outcast in our society, is the one who chose to show uh, an act of love, the one who chose to engage the situation and help the hurting person. It, Jesus takes and he reverses a story, whereas in our lives, we can think of ourselves as followers of Jesus and elite, and so we can reward ourselves for the good things that we do on occasion. We can live that life of morality. I've done more good things than bad things, as though that's the standard that Jesus invites us to follow. His, it, it, we've lowered the goal as we do that. No, but instead in the story here, it says an outcast in the society who is disliked, who is possibly not an honest and loving man, except that his actions say otherwise, someone that we would assume to be dishonest. And I think culturally, uh, the people in, in our lives that, that we think less of, right, that, that we think culturally, they just, they just don't, they don't live up to the bar. Uh, they're, they're dishonest. I think of the Tri-Cities, and, and I won't list people that I, I think we stereotype in that way. But if we, if we just take just a moment to consider who are the people that we kind of look down our nose at in our society, that we think is dishonest and we think is untrustworthy, and we kind of keep our distance from. It's fascinating to me that the story Jesus tells says that that person that we're thinking of was the one to live a godly life of love. It's interesting to imagine that as, as we sit in this room and God accomplishes powerful things as we gather on a weekly basis and in our branches, maybe God is calling us far outside of these walls and to realize God at work in the lives of some of those least trusted people and lowest people in our society around us.
Because the Samaritan man in, in Jesus' story, he's the one that took pity on the man beaten. He goes and he binds his wounds and he takes them and out of his own pocket he pays for the man to be taken care of. He goes above and beyond and he says, and whatever other expenses are incurred, I'll be back to continue to help this man. By the way, I think that's a significant piece to the story. The idea of coming back. I mean, how often in life is it just so easy to do that one time kind and loving thing? But the, the standard set in the story is know that, that, that we come back and, and, and to help in significant ways, to live lives of love, not singular acts of love in the lives of people. And so Jesus asks us then today as we start to turn this story into our lives and ask, where does it, where does it impact us and what does God invite us to? Um, he says, so which of these was a neighbor? And the answer was obvious. The one who had mercy was a neighbor. And so he says, go and do likewise. Jesus invites us in this story today to consider what does it look like to live a life of love, undying, unending love for God, and to live a life of unending compassion for the world around us, that we return to the hurting, that we live in rhythms of life that that allow us to bless the lives of hurting people around us. Jesus invites us to know a life of love. He invites us to also a task that we've, cons- we've realized is impossible, that we fall short. I mean, any standard I choose for myself, whether it's a standard that God has laid out in Scripture or the standard uh, that culturally we're to live up to, even just a self-imposed standard, I've decided I will not do this and that. Think back over the past week. How well have we lived up to the standards that we've set, our- set for ourselves? We realize ourselves lacking uh, when it comes to living up to, to God. God's standard, or even our substandard, lowering the bar standards that we've created for us. And so we ask ourselves, so where do we turn? Uh, uh, Where do we turn when we find ourselves lacking, but wanting to live these lives of love? And the two places I challenge us is we turn to Jesus and the example he's set, and we turn to God and the promises that he's made for us. So as it relates to loving God and to loving people, I'd say this. Jesus set an example in this respect, and I'll just share one as, as, we're, as we're closing out. Um, Jesus is hanging on a cross, dying for sins that were not his own, dying that we might have hope, fulfilling God's promise for the Israelite people that out of them the Spirit would come, that the church would be formed and the world would be blessed through these Israelite people. Jesus hanging on a cross, fulfilling all of that, And he cries out to God saying, God, where are you now? In the hardest times in life, he demonstrates this this undying love. Though he is dying in this moment, he demonstrates this undying love saying, God, I need you. Why have you forsaken me? Why do you feel so far from me in this moment? And he looks down to the men crucifying. and, And still trusting and loving God, he says, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus demonstrates in the most extreme moments of life an ability to cry out to God, to maintain that loving posture towards God and that love towards the people around him, even those that are persecuting him. And and we realize, God, we need your help. If I am to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, God, I need your help. 
And I'll let you look these up later, but I want to run through and show the promises of God as it applies to learning to live a life of love for God and for people. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God promises that he will give us a new heart. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16, Jesus says he will renew our mind. He'll give us a new mind. In, in John 14, 17, um, he, he says that he will give us his spirit that his spirit would live inside of us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, uh, Jesus, uh, or, uh, God says, Scripture says that he will give us strength to accomplish the things he's called us to. You see, the man was perfectly content setting the, the goal as low as possible, finding out just what do I have to do to get by? Jesus gives him a, an impossible answer. But, but throughout Scripture, God has demonstrated and promised that I will help you accomplish this goal. So I want to invite us as we close out today just to reflect on what it looks like to live a life of love. What aspects of my life am I holding back from God in selfish ways? And, and, and what aspects of life am I invited to love God wholly in the week to come? What does it look like to give up some of my personal time to spend a little bit more time with God, with God in communion? What does it look like to give up a little bit of, of, of my time and my desires to live a little more on mission? That we learn to love people around us. That when we see people hurting and needing, that we choose to respond in appropriate ways. I get that there's, there's ways that helping people can actually hurt them. When, when Helping Hurts is, a, is an excellent book, and um, some of the focus of one of our branches that Steve and Wynette Reasonweber live, uh, lead, um, uh, so that we respond when we see need, but in ways that truly help people around us. That we look for opportunities that, as the people of God, that we can, that we can leverage our lives and our times, the meals that we eat, uh, in, in ways that, that bless the lives of hurting people in our community. That we live out this greatest commandment in real ways in life. So, so let me say this. One of the primary pursuits of, of our branches and the way we've structured them is that we want those to be avenues and platforms in which we can launch into our community with love and with hope for people. That we want to use those as opportunities to serve. So, well, well, one week we'll just be sharing a meal together and inviting people to community and, and to, to healthy relationship. Uh, the next week, uh, we want our branches to be uh, serving at the mission uh, or, or cleaning up a, a highway, whatever it looks like, we're inviting our branches to dream about what does it look like to live lives of love and how can we encourage each other in that journey? That we not be uh, alone in this process, but instead invite each other in community to live lives of love towards God, towards the people around us. I, I realize that the standard is high, that the bar is high, And I know that in the week to come, we will all struggle with it. But my prayer is exactly that. My prayer is that we will choose to struggle with it. That we will choose to ask the hard questions of what does it look like to love God and to love people. And in so doing, how can we inspire others to follow Jesus as well? Let's pray about that.
Father God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for a chance to engage your word, Father, to explore uh, what you have for us in scripture today. Uh, Father, we thank you for a story that is familiar, and yet I think all of us, I know I, Father, can, can realize has not fully taken seed in my life and grown into a life of, of undying love for you and unending compassion for the people around me. So, Father, I pray that you will help these words to come to life, it, it come to life in us. Father, I pray that as we gather outside of this place, that you will give us vision and wisdom, um, that, Father, the blessings you've given us can be leveraged for the hope of this community and the hurting people around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.